Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, January 16th, 2022. Happy MLK Day for everyone who is taking the day off, or even if you're not taking the day off, but know it's an important day. It is an important day, and it is the day that you are all listening to this. That's not what makes the day important, but uh, actually, appreciate it. No, but actually that's not true. I mean, that's the day it's released, but many people listen later in the week, you know? That is true, too. But yes, MLK Day, way more important than our release. Nevertheless, we are going to be talking about, I know, civil rights, voting rights, and what else, Naomi? Anything else on the uh, agenda today for you? Well, I'm talking voting rights, so maybe we're talking about the same thing. Perhaps indeed. Interesting. I guess we didn't check in before we that's made That's fine, our... but that's a good thing. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about what shows we covered. I took a look at Face the Nation, hosted by Margaret Brennan. I took a look at This Week, hosted by Martha Raddatz. And I took a look at State of the Union, hosted by Jake Tapper. What did you look at? I looked at Fox News Sunday, which was hosted by John Roberts this week. Mm. And Okay, so not Brett Baer. Not Brett Baer. And then I also looked at Meet the Press, which was hosted by Chuck Todd, who never takes vacations. Yeah. So let's dive into it, Brendan. Quality, questionable. Anything stand out for you? So I had to highlight a moment from Face the Nation, because last week, if you recall, I talked a lot about COVID and the pandemic, which I was totally prepared to do again this week. I had plenty of material to make a segment out of, but I thought, well, I literally just said that last week. But there were actually a lot of really good critical questions to our health policy leaders by a number of the hosts that I looked at this week. I'm not going to cover that. But one of the things I did note last week was this idea of shows going the extra mile and maybe actually speaking to real regular people and citizens and asking them what they thought about the COVID-19 messaging out there from the CDC and the federal government. And perhaps at the very moment I was saying that, Face the Nation was doing just that thing because Anthony Salvanto was on the show. He is the polling expert guru for CBS News, he was talking about some overall polling that they were doing to assess how Americans feel about Joe Biden's first year in office. And of course, a lot of that has to do with his handling the pandemic and the messaging around that handling. So here's a bit of that. Let's start with COVID. Now, part of this is just expectations. At the start of his term, people thought COVID would get better. But right now, most people don't think the effort against the pandemic is going well. Part of a president's ratings always carry some of that general feeling. You look back at the start of his term, he got very strong approval ratings for handling the pandemic. That carried into the summer at two-thirds approval. Started to dip a little bit as cases got a little bit worse, some vaccine controversies. 
down to where it is now. Now, let's be clear. It's not that people blame a president for all of this. When you look at why people might think he's not doing a good job, the thing that stands out is information. People feel it's been confusing. That stands out. In fact, overall, people in the nation say that that guidance has been increasingly confusing, and that does accrue to a president. We know that the science is always trying to get a hold on this, but in the public mind, they do look for that clarity, Margaret. So there you go. Evidence, direct evidence, that people say this messaging is confusing. And guess what? As we said last week, Biden is not an expert on epidemiology, but he and his administration can do a hell of a lot better than they are at the messaging. This type of analysis is interesting to me because I think it's important to kind of get regular, you know, data on the state of people's reaction to COVID regulations and mitigations and guidance or whatever. But I I don't know, something kind of makes me a little itchy when they're kind of said so simply because there's like for each one of these things, there's like so much nuance and circumstance that changes how people react to things or their ability to do so. And so it's just a really good example of polling being being really important but also having really limited value well it's yeah it's kind of simplifying things and it wasn't in-depth about this topic it was just one piece right exactly. of a larger thing yeah naomi what was your quality questionable this week so my questionable was an insanely long interview on fox news sunday with with the new governor of virginia Glenn Youngkin, he was just sworn in and is starting his term. And I was just, I I swear it felt like almost 20 minutes. I mean, it might have been closer to 16 minutes or something, but it was very, very long. And he is the notably Republican governor of Virginia. Right, the new Republican governor. Terry McAuliffe lost and it was a very heated election. And a lot of people have noted this race because Glenn Youngkin was able to kind of appease and solicit the support of Trump supporters without necessarily aligning himself too closely to Trump himself. And win in a state where previously there have been a long string recently of Democratic governors. Yeah, Virginia is a pretty purplish state. It has a very, you know, blue northern area, but some red areas in, in the south part of the state so i don't know like it was just very very long and then i felt like the interview was referred to multiple times throughout the show as if it was like an important commentary on the state of politics and strategy within the republican party and it's like he literally has been governor for two days like i don't know let's like wait it really bothered me take a listen to one example of something that they discussed pretty extensively, and that is critical race theory and parental involvement in schools more broadly. And in Virginia, it is clear under law that parents have a fundamental right to make decisions for their children's upbringing, their education, and their care. And so we are providing parents an opt-out. We're providing them the ability to make the right decision for their child with regards to their child's well-being. Mm -hmm. We are going to use all the authority that that I have to consider all options to protect that right. 
And I think this is exactly what Virginians voted for in November and we delivered yesterday. Let me move on to critical race theory because this was a huge flashpoint in the November election. Again, part of the reason uh, that you're credited with the victory uh, there in the Commonwealth. It'll likely be a big issue in the midterms as well. Critics of your position, and and you sign an executive order again that would, quote, end the use of divisive concepts in schools, which is an allusion to critical race theory. Critics of your position, including former President Obama, say, look, critical race theory is not being taught in schools and that this was merely a a, a trumped up phony culture war. What do you say to that? And, And what does your executive order actually do in terms of critical race theory? Well, anyone who thinks that the concepts that actually underpin critical race theory are not in our schools hasn't been in our schools. And oh, by the way, I think the school systems in Virginia and particularly in Loudoun County have been doing everything they can to try to try to obfuscate the fact that the curriculum has moved in a very, very opaque way that has hidden a lot of this from parents. And so we are, in fact, are going to increase transparency so that parents can actually see what's being taught in schools. And we have instructed our our Board of Education, I've instructed our Secretary of Education, our State Superintendent of Public Schools to review the curriculum and get racially divisive and other divisive teaching concepts out of the school system. So this is a pretty long clip. It's not even everything that was discussed in this interview specifically around schools it kind of kept going for a while it's just a very strange use of time and whether you think glenn youngkin is right on the money on this or not like nothing (laughs) other than his executive order like not much has happened like we don't if you think he's right we don't have any actual school districts who have now since removed the so-called you know framework of crt from their schools and there's some type of analysis or you know community reaction to how that's benefiting them and if you don't agree with governor yunkin there wasn't like an analysis like a deep enough analysis here as to how he's defining those frameworks or like you know, if, if CRT isn't actually being taught in schools, then how are you determining what those tenants are? And like, right, There's, what they're not getting into the content. This is all just like right. vague terminology. Oh, we need to increase transparency. Parents need power and control. Okay, but what? What, does what that, are what you does talking about? Like, oh, they've been obfuscating what they're really. Te- well, okay, well, get let's get into the detail here. Like, this is all very right. vague. It, it's so vague. His answer, His, but like also the purpose of the conversation is not to be specific the purpose of the conversation is not for viewers to be like oh well maybe we should do that in our state or this is what we should be looking for if you know we're concerned about this or what like it's so top level that you're like why am i spending six minutes listening to this and this was true of other topics too there was a whole conversation apparently there was a rape or two rapes in loudon county and it was very confusing as to why this was on a national news show. I think there was some question as to like why, you know, the it seemed like it was like a student and they were able to get into different school systems without their record being flagged or whatever. There was another story, uh, another line of questions about snowstorm prep. So is Virginia ready? These are very like, local questions. What is this I like know. the local news? Exactly. And then like for the then the interview to then be referred to so much 
throughout the episode with other guests, specifically in the Sunday group. I was like, it was not valuable. Like, why are we leaning on this like core interview on today's show as if it's something we're gonna like gain a lot of insight from? It was just very, very bizarre. And, you know, just to kind of compare it a little bit, I felt that same way a little bit with the interview with James Carville on Meet the Press. And it wasn't as long. It wasn't nearly as long. And it wasn't referred to as much kind of in their panel. But it did have the same sense of like, is this man organizing within the Democratic Party? Is he doing focus groups with the Democratic with with Democratic voters? Like no, he's a cranky old man. Right. And has you know, been he's like a Democratic decades. commentator you know, former strategist, but it's just like, why are we giving him time and then leaning on his comments as like some deep, profound insight as to what the Democratic Party should be doing? Like, it just is like, why are we like elevating voices in a way that don't match what their true value is? Right. Where's the where's the relevance? The relevance. relevance Thank you. That's the word I'm thinking of. Does he have anything relevant to say? backed up by current experience because literally it was a different time that he was working yeah it was just it's just both of those gave me a sense of like why am i here like why and i had to focus so hard to try to finish them because i was just so bored out of my mind it kind of reminds me of you know how (laughs) i'm gonna get a lot we're gonna get a lot of complaints on this one (laughs) You know, yeah. What are you going to say? You know how it's really important for states to make sure that as people get older and maybe their eyesight and their abilities decline, that they need to renew their driver's license tests to make sure that they are still safe to drive a vehicle and licensed to do so. I feel like every so often, news networks need to say, okay, this person who's on our list of people we call and book because they have something relevant to say about politics, let's look a little more closely and make sure they they pass that test right now. Maybe we should update whether their credentials are like there for, you know, and, and maybe are they're different. Are their credentials different. still relevant? Right. Still and maybe, valid. And maybe they're, okay, they're not someone we're going to book as like a headline guest who gets their own segment, but maybe we'll check in with them on a panel. You know, maybe they get a seat on the panel, but they're not going to be a guest who's interviewed. I think it's probably about time to do that for for James Carville. Because here's the thing. I heard referenced what he said on Face the Nation. Oh, God. And he says the same thing (laughs) every time, and he has for, for, like, the last few democratic administrations like oh democrats are whiners they just keep whining they just it's like okay well like the part for the james carville interview that really underscored to me i'm like this does not match reality he gave this whole thing about like democrats need to care about child poverty and we've been able to reduce child poverty and you know we should be talking about the things that we've accomplished not things that we didn't get done like that's how you win elections and i'm like okay but part of that was done through the child care tax credit you know the payments that have been going on which were not renewed right they have expired (laughs) like good job doing that thing that we're no longer doing that was supposedly really effective yeah that's gonna be a real winning piece (laughs) of messaging and then wondering why people are angry and like aren't enthused (laughs) which is like 
like what are you saying like the words you're saying does not match like current reality you know and so I just implore the shows to really think about like the objective of their interviews and making sure that the voices that they're booking are helping reach those objectives. And also even like uh, Carville, what he... <laughs> I was not making... I did not mean for this to turn into like but, the but, James Carville question. But even at the level of what his expertise is, his expertise is winning elections. Guess what? The election is almost still almost a year away okay there isn't act a lot of active campaigning going on electioneering going on we're not close to that election yet so don't put on an elections expert on messaging everything he sees is through the lens of elections but guess what this biden administration and this congress is still trying to actually pass laws for realsies okay <laughs> they're not in the role of we just need to message that we've done awesome things, right? They're not in that mode right now. They're just trying so hard to do anything. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, like, is is Carvel the right guy? Of course Carvel's going to say, well, I'm going to tell you from an elections point, they're be doing stupid stuff because they're actually trying to do stuff. And in elections, you don't do stuff. You talk about yeah, stuff. Yeah, you gloat. Right. And you, I can't remember what he says. And you accuse. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what he says, but yeah. Okay, Brendan, I think we need to move on from James Carville, which was not supposed to go quite this extensively. What are you talking about in your segment? Well, I'm talking about elections. <laughs> Even though we were just saying that's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about doing something around elections, and that is voting rights. Okay, here's a quick recap, okay? I'm going to try to make this as fast as possible, but I'm going to try to include the relevance, relevant points here. So related to voting rights... There was a pandemic during this. I don't know if you're aware during this pandemic, a lot of people were maybe afraid to go out and vote. And there were lots of issues about should people be standing in line and voting? So a lot of states passed laws making it easier for people to vote and not interact face to face with polling stations. So there was a lot more mail-in voting. There was a lot more expanded voting beyond election day, there were a lot of ballot boxes and drop boxes that were made available. This made it easier for a lot of people to vote. And during that presidential election, during that pandemic year, more people voted than ever before. Trump lost. He wasn't happy about it. He complained about voter fraud, tried to stage or supported an insurrection, still lost, still complained about the election, said it was a fraud, bunch of Republican legislators all across the country passed restrictions making it harder to vote than it was in that previous pandemic election, during which, by the way, not only did Trump lose, but Georgia lost two Republican senators, and now there are two Democratic senators in Georgia. Democrats decried this, tried to pass, and said there needed to be federal laws protecting voting rights and expanded voting. And those laws failed to pass many, many times. Biden, having lost the Build Back Better agenda that he and his team worked on for like six months, decided to try to push voting rights in the last week. And that failed tremendously after Senator Sinema said she refused to make a special carve out for the filibuster on the same day 
that Biden was going to rally the troops in Congress. Here is the first clip I wanted to begin with during this many conversations that we had this week about what happened. And it's the opening to face the nation. And his attempt at pushing fellow Democrats, Senators Manchin and Cinema, to support rules changes to pass a voting rights bill is all but certain to fail. And while I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. The president even concedes his effort is likely doomed. The honest to God answer is, I don't know whether we can get this done. Given the enormous challenges facing Mr. Biden, is the fight a good use of precious political capital? We'll ask Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine. So there you get a little voice of cinema, a little voice of President Biden. I hate the use of the word doomed here. Margaret Brennan is really stretching and actually miss communicating what the president actually said. He did not concede his effort is likely doomed. That is not what he said. I mean, we just heard the clip. That's not what he said. That is just over the top language. But at least she did play what he actually said. So in my segment, I'm going to cover a few things that Representative Jim Clyburn said. He is extremely close to President Biden, extremely close to voting rights. He knew personally Dr. Martin Luther King. He is a representative from the state of South Carolina, critical in reviving, essentially, Biden's chances of winning the Democratic primary, and so a key player in all of this. And then I'm going to play a little bit of Republican Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy, who's defending Republican efforts to pass restrictive voter laws, and then a little bit from panels and things like that. Well, I also have a couple of Representative Clyburn clips that I was planning on discussing for my segment when he was on Meet the Press. Other people I'm looking at are Mitt Romney and then a couple of journalists from the panel on Meet the Press. I guess my segment is focused more on the question of what is a more valuable angle, the legislative strategy of this work, or the broader question if this is hollow rhetoric. So not sure how that fits into your segment, but I might either include those clips or wait till the end. So why don't we start off with this clip from Clyburn on Meet the Press in which he's talking about why it's crucial that Democrats vote on, I mean, well, Congress in general, vote on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and that it's important to know where people stand on this. You express some openness that, look, the Electoral Vote Act is not something you want to do first. You would prefer to do the voting rights bills first. But you seem open to doing something there. And since there is a bipartisan interest in doing something there, do you think you could build a bill out, perhaps with Mitt Romney, who will be on the show later, put a bill together that might, you know, fix what we saw on January 6th, protect election workers? And I think you even mentioned perhaps even getting the Voting Rights Act preclearance issues in that bill. Is that that's something you think is worth pursuing? Absolutely. But I also think it's, it's, it's worth us having this vote. We need to find out, you know, back in the 60s, we used to sing a song. John Lewis loved that song. Which side are you on? We <laughs> always know that there are people who are freedom fighters. And there are also people who are uh, rather have favor. And so we know that. I mean, people tell me they are for this legislation. 
but they are against uh, the processes that we need in order to get the legislation, then I'm, I don't think you're on the right side of history. So we ought to fight. We got to have these votes. We got to see which side uh, people are on. And if that were to fail, as people project it will, yeah. then what's the next best thing? Remember now, uh, the Electoral College will not kick in until 2024. Right. I want to know what's going to happen in 2022 when someone is standing in a line and, I, and need a drink of water. Uh, when you got these six and seven hour waits right. uh, in line uh, in black communities and 20 minutes in white communities. When you've got a committee there uh, set to overturn your vote if they don't like the outcome. So that's the thing uh, that we need to do now. Yes, that's a strong case he's making for action to combat some of these Republican bills out there. But you also heard Representative Clyburn call out people who say they support the bills but aren't willing to do what needs to be done to get them passed. And he talked a lot about that, I felt, on the shows that I covered. For example, take a listen to what he said directly in response to Senator Democratic Senator Sinema's refusal to change the filibuster. No one has asked her to eliminate uh, the filibuster. The filibuster is there for all of these issues that may be policy issues. But when it comes to the Constitution of the United States of America, no one person sitting downtown in a spa ought to be able to pick up the telephone and say, you are going to put a hold on my ability uh, to vote. And that's what's going on here. So I would wish they would stop that foolishness. Because if we do not protect the vote with everything that we've got, we will not have a country uh, to protect going forward. I don't know where we got the notion from uh, that this democracy is here to stay no matter how we conduct ourselves. Our job, when we took the oath, we took the oath of office to protect this country from all uh, enemies, foreign and domestic. There are some domestic enemies that showed up on January 6th, and they didn't stop there. They're still going on. And you hear it when the president tweets out or whatever he says uh, about getting rid uh, of people's convenient voting places, saying to paraplegics that you, you can't make it convenient for you to vote, saying to 90-year-olds that you got to stand in line four and five hours to vote, and if anybody gives you a glass of water, uh, they will be uh, put in jail. That third world stuff, and we had better be careful. And that was on State of the Union. So the mo the line here that really resonated with me was, I don't know where we got the notion from that this democracy is here to stay no matter how we conduct ourselves. I think that's really kind of like underscores what this is all about. Because it's very clear that some people, like Clyburn and many of the other Democratic senators and representatives, recognize that this is a critical moment. And other people, like Senator Sinema, clearly aren't willing to do everything that needs to be done to make this legislation law. But you also heard there Representative Clyburn reference the water bottle provision, which was highly criticized when it was actually passed. And later on State of the Union, we get to hear from Senator Bill Cassidy 
Republican senator from Louisiana, actually defending that provision. Most of what, in all due respect, most of what Representative Clyburn said was wrong or misleading. If these laws are constitutional, they'll be struck down. He's implying they won't be. They're not criminalizing giving people water. They're just saying you can't walk up to them just before they walk in, give them a piece of water, and tell them who to vote for. You can still give water to the people working at the poll. They can distribute it. This just feels kind of gross to me, the idea that, like, we're just going to make laws, and then if they're unconstitutional, then we will, they'll be struck down. And in the meantime, elections happen. People are affected by these ill-intended, potentially ill-intended legislation or clauses. And I just, I hate lawmaking like this. Like, if there's a real issue, it'll be struck down. It's like, don't make laws that are issues. How about that? That might be a better strategy. Also, his, like, defense of this water situation, he's like, don't give the water to the people who need it. Give the water to the people who are poll workers, who representatives of the state, right? And and this state that passed this restrictive law, yeah, we'll trust them to hand out the water. Or that the fact that they that should be the responsibility. Like, they're hired to do a job. Right. And... Now they're going to go walk down this line and hand out water bottles? Right. Later, Cassidy goes deeper into some of the voting reform packages, as he calls them, in Texas and Georgia and contrast them with some Democratic states and the ability to vote there. There were some of the, the pieces of legislation that were parts of that those voting uh, reform packages in Texas and Georgia that did not act, uh, ultimately pass, but seemed to really have uh, ill intent uh, at their root. For example, banning Sunday voting, which would have disproportionately affected souls to the polls, movements by black churches uh, to go from church to, to get people to vote ultimately didn't become law, but that really um, alarmed a lot of people at what the intent might have been. I don't know what to say. This proves the system works. My gosh, now Georgia has two days of Sunday voting that is optional, that you can do it. And by the way, there were no drop boxes before the pandemic. There were none. And now we still have drop boxes. So an accommodation made for a pandemic are going to continue in the future when theoretically the pandemic is over. And shall I point out that Georgia has more early voting days than does Delaware or New York by far. They have no excuse uh, absentee voting. So when Representative Clyburn says the 90-year-old woman has to stand in line for four hours, in Georgia she doesn't, I think in Delaware she might have to, or New York. So maybe we need to start looking at the blue states, which have not been nearly so reactive and supportive of voting as opposed to a state like Georgia, which clearly has relative to them. That is a very familiar Republican talking point. I heard Mitt Romney say the same exact thing about Georgia in comparison to other states like New Jersey and Delaware. Yeah, I found this, you know, I'd heard a little bit about this and I heard obviously it again here from Senator Cassidy and I was like, oh, let's get to the bottom of this. Is there a fact check? Is there some details that can help us really understand what this is all about, what this means, how it is really in these states like Delaware and New York? And I found a great article. We'll have the show note uh, link to it in The Atlantic by Russell Berman published back in April when a lot of these laws were getting passed and proposed and talked about. And he is a, uh, a politics reporter for The Atlantic. 
And he basically uncovered that, yeah, actually, Delaware and New York and a number of other states in the Northeast make it pretty hard for people to vote. Here's a little quote from the article. He says, Connecticut has no early voting at all, and New York's onerous rules force voters to change their registration months in advance if they want to participate in a party primary. In Rhode Island, Democrats enacted a decade ago the kind of photo ID law that the party has labeled racist when drafted by Republicans. The state also requires voters to get the signatures of not one but two witnesses when casting an absentee ballot. Only Alabama and North Carolina are similarly strict. According to a new analysis released this week by the Nonpartisan Center for Election Innovation and Research, Delaware, Connecticut, and New York rank in the bottom third of states in their access to early and mail-in balloting. End quote. And then he goes about trying to understand why this is, why these states, these Democratic states, make it harder for people to vote. And he has some interesting things that he uncovers. Part of it is, as he describes the history of democratic political machines in states like New York didn't want to give other candidates the ability to rally their voters over a longer period of time and therefore wanted to restrict voting just to the day of the election. And then in the case of Rhode Island, their voter ID law was passed with the support of the democratic majority, including from powerful black elected leaders who kind of pitted black and white Democrats against the state's rising Latino population and therefore had this voter ID law to kind of with the idea of depressing the Latino turnout in Providence, Rhode Island. And the reality is, and this is kind of where Cassidy's and these Republicans, you know, complaints kind of hit the wall of of truth, which is, yeah, it is harder to vote in some of these Democratic strongholds. But this law that's being proposed isn't only going to affect Republican states, it will affect these Democratic states as well and will make it easier to vote everywhere. That's why it's a federal law. It's not just a law about Republican states in the South. So the argument that, oh, well, this is just targeting Republican states. What about the Democrats? Well, actually, it'll target Democratic states as well. I do want to point out, though, that's not to say that these Republican state laws are not restrictive and weren't passed with the idea of, like, restricting and changing what the results of these elections are going to be. From the same article, it notes, quote, The Georgia law tightens ID requirements for absentee ballots and caps the number of drop boxes where they can be deposited. The measure also limits who can distribute water to voters waiting in line outside polling places. The effect of the bill is likely to make voting easier in Republican strongholds by expanding early voting in rural areas, for example, but harder in Democratic urban centers where lines at polling places tend to be longer and where voting by mail was more popular last year. End quote. It's interesting how much this was discussed on the Sunday shows and that there were kind of different angles shows could take right so taking a step back at least what i noticed is that there was kind of a conversation as to why this bill is needed why it's necessary what its intentions are and what is its future given that kirsten cinema does not want to change any filibuster rules to kind of make it easier to pass this and then there was a lot of discussion on biden's speech in a Georgia and Atlanta itself about what was its value, what was it trying to do? And so I kind of saw like 
two planes, right? Where one is on the legislation itself and kind of like the, you know, making the sausage (laughs) type work. In terms of the conversations on the shows? Right. And then the other was like, what is the White House's angle on this? What did they accomplish? Were they successful? Right. And I don't think one is like one trumps the other. It's just felt like it was kind of all jumbled up, especially on Meet the Press and made it confusing a little bit to then be able to to do any type of analysis of like, oh, this is where we are and this is what's working or this is what isn't working or this is, you know, it, it just felt kind of like there were it was it was hard to extrapolate those two separate conversations. Did you have any kind of reactions or sense of of those kind of two angles on the shows you looked at, Brendan? Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, for for most of the shows I covered, the focus was on the first part, like the merits of the bill and a little bit about the, you know, drama with Kirsten Cinema and whether it could pass, but not really this like, should the White House have been doing things this way? Have they been effective? That sort of thing. There was a little bit of that on Face the Nation, as we heard from the clip I played earlier, where Margaret Brennan was saying, you know, should Biden have spent the political capital on this? Because it looks like it's not going to happen. But overall, most of my discussions felt like they were based on the merits and the existing possibility of this possibly passing. That's so interesting, because that that's really not what happened on Meet the Press. It was a lot more integrated with, like, What is the White House doing on this? Are they doing this too late? Are they going too far? Are they reaching out to Republicans to try to find a bipartisan compromise? Is that worth it? It was much more like, how does this then translate to a White House win? Right. Rather than like the work of legislators and activists themselves. Yep. As usual, seen through the lens of the president and the White House because that's that's the only major player in politics that yeah. the Sunday shows like to talk about. <laughs> Just as an example of this, take a listen to this clip when Chuck Todd is talking to Senator Mitt Romney, a Republican senator from Utah. Mitt Romney notes that Republicans like him who would be open to having a conversation haven't been part of the, those conversations. President calls you up tomorrow and says, Senator Romney, I'd like to figure out something on voting rights. Can we sit down and have a conversation? You heard Jim Clyburn about the Electoral Vote Act. It, look, it, it may not be what some want on the left, but is that a place to begin? And would you participate in that process? Yeah, and Chuck, I already am. Uh, the group of about uh, 12 senators, Republicans and Democrats that are working on the Electoral Count Act uh, we'll continue to work together. Sadly, this uh, election reform um, uh, bill that the, the president has been pushing, uh, I never got a call on that from the White House. Uh, there was no negotiation bringing Republicans and Democrats together to try and come up with something that would meet bipartisan interest. Um, uh, sure, we, we can work together on almost every issue where there's common ground. I would note on this that on the bill they, they, they put together, that they want a real dramatic change, which is they, they feel that instead of elections being run at the state level, they should really be managed and run at the federal level. And recognize the founders didn't have that vision in mind. No. They didn't want an autocrat to be able to, to pull a lever in one place and change all the election laws. Instead, they spread that out over 50 states, I think in part to keep autocracy from finding its root here in this country. So we're, we're gonna, we can work together, yeah. and I think it's important to reform the Electoral Count Act to do so. This is very interesting because it's actually a 
direct contrast to what I heard from Senator Tim Kaine, a Democratic senator who said directly that they have had zero support or interest from any Republicans in dealing with this, save Lisa Murkowski, who is willing to discuss some smaller provisions. So this is very interesting, but I guess Romney is going from the perspective of what the White House has done and whether they have reached out to him, and he's saying, no, they have not. Which, that being, tr- if that's true, and there's no reason to doubt it, it's like, why would that be the case? Romney is a right on that like moderate edge where you would expect there would be lots of ongoing conversations with him from the White House. Well, funny you should say that. Andrea Mitchell felt the same exact way. That's the one thing about Senator Sinema's speech, and I had a lot of problems publicly with her timing. A freshman senator making that speech as the motorcade was warming up, the leader of your party is coming to make this appeal to the Democratic caucus, was so in your face. Everyone knew where she stood, but to do it so publicly. That said, not reaching out to Romney, not reaching out to this group of 12 Mm -hmm. is such a critical mistake. Uh, it could be done, you know, to try to find along the margins. And there may well be a compromise that could have been available and still might be available. And you said earlier this week, Chuck, uh, on MTB Daily, was this just messaging, you know, or was this, right. you know, trying to placate the base? Or was this a real strategy? It wasn't a strategy. Yeah. And it was messaging. And it was great rhetoric. But was there something yeah. in the middle? So just to kind of connect what she's talking about here, Andrew Mitchell is specifically noting that on the day that President Biden was going to go to Congress to kind of rally the troops, literally that same day, Kristen Cinema says, hey, guys, I love the filibuster. Let's keep it forever. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but no, I, said- I mean, I mean, that's even kinder than what she said. What she <laughs> said was basically like, why don't you just stay at the White House, Biden? Like, I- I'm not for what you want. Right. You're not getting what you want from me. And don't even come here and talk to me because I am not game. Right. And so and then Andrew Mitchell as well is noting the speech that Biden and Harris gave in Georgia this week, which got a lot of blowback, apparently, supposedly people getting upset, saying he went too far, including Democrats and Republicans feeling like it was pretty heated rhetoric. Yeah, I heard a lot about that. Right. And so all this to say, <laughs> Andrew Mitchell's comments here, I don't know how totally appropriate they are as a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Are like are you a democratic commentator or <laughs> are you like the manners police of right. Washington yeah. DC like it's I mean it's probably I should probably shouldn't be laughing quite as much but she does not sound like she likes Kristen Cinema but Mitchell is commenting on Cinema just being so bad at being a member of her own party like what are you doing yeah, particularly offended by the pettiness of cinema. And then the other piece of that, of what Mitchell's talking about, is the speech that Biden gave. Was it to visibly, to make a, you know, a very visible public stand as to why this is so important, so necessary to kind of show that he cares about this and it's important to him? Or was it tied to some like legislative strategy? And and if it's so, then like, what's the point of pissing off all these people by calling them, you know, George Wallace? And so that story, that angle 
it's a lot of kind of like Washington, D.C. water cooler talk. It's like interesting gossip, but not actionable. Does that make sense? So there was a lot of interesting things that were said in the interview with Representative Clyburn. Chuck Todd noted in the interview with Representative Clyburn how there was a New York Times op-ed by Bishop Reginald Jackson pretty much saying like this intensity, this passion and fire by Biden would have been a lot more useful several months ago. Maybe like April when that article that I was just citing was published and all the conversation was happening around it. (laughs) Right. It feels too little too late. But then in the panel, right after this conversation or right after this comment from Andrea Mitchell, Chuck Todd notes that the White House felt compelled to do this because activists are so frustrated. And in this conversation, Chuck Todd is talking to Amna Nawaz, and she is with the PBS NewsHour. I was told by somebody in the White House said, look, they're like, uh, the activists are angry. He had to do this. Like, that was the argument. If he didn't do this, they weren't going to have people to lick envelopes in, in Senate races and House races. But did he, you know, I, what a curious question I have is, do they really go through with this vote next week and highlight Democratic disunity for a second week? Yeah, I think they do, because they want to show, as the president has said repeatedly, where you stand. You know, history will judge. That's what Clyburn said. And and the president has said it, too. History will judge where you stand on this one issue. You can see people running on this in in 22. And you have to be able to message to your core supporters. I mean, you look at who the Democratic base is, who has benefited from the deliberate, intentional work to expand voting rights and voting access. Those are people of color. Those are women, women of color, poor people in America. If they are not messaging that we are fighting for you in some way, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the other message is right now when they're still fighting COVID and clawing back on the economy in the way that they are. That said, those activists, you saw them angry because they said, these are just words. These are not actions. If you were serious, we would have seen this kind of rhetoric much earlier in your presidency. It's interesting that you noted, you know, before this clip about this being kind of interesting speculation, the Biden administration does seem to be pretty good at not letting people know exactly what their strategy is and giving us like the inside story and view on what they're doing or why they're doing it. And so I feel like this administration, certainly more than last, but more than any I can remember, is really good at like not having leaks and people talking to the press. And holding everything to their chest. Right. And so we are kind of left guessing, even the people on these shows are truly left guessing like, okay, it sounds like your heart is in it, but is your strategy in it? Yes or no? Like, do you really think you're going to do it or not? And we don't really know. We're kind of left speculating. And from my perspective, I don't know either. It's like you kind of just have to take them at their word. You know, they're trying to do something, so we'll see if they can do it. But we don't really know what they're doing in the in the background, you know, is there actually a strategy here or not? Some of the stories we have had looking back suggest that there is a lot less strategy than, or, or at least good strategy, than it might seem from the outside. As we've learned with how Build Back Better kind of fell apart, the White House and advisors were driving Manchin crazy, and they were putting out statements when he didn't want them to. And that seems to show that the strategy really wasn't all there. And they weren't really making the right decisions. We also know that the strategy for preparing for this recent surge of the pandemic wasn't all there because where are the tests? We still don't have the tests, right? And we needed them. So I think this White House, they can kind of keep it behind closed doors as much as they want. But the more times it's revealed after the fact that they're 
attempts were failures and their strategies were hollow, the less benefit of the doubt we're going to give them and assume that they have a strategy. Yeah, and I think that's why I was so perplexed and intrigued maybe on these two kind of planes of analysis on the Sunday news shows today because there's the, you know, the one conversation around like why is this necessary and who is for it and then there's the other conversation of like how bad does the white house actually want this to happen and what are they doing to make it happen and is it working i think you're right i think this white house does keep things pretty close to their chest and you know i am the household cynic i totally claim that and part of it is like when they mess up you can't really point to exactly when and why their strategy fell through, right? Yeah. And so I do think there's value in talking about like, how bad does the White House really want this? And is this helping them? But it's so based off of like such shaky foundational knowledge and just kind of like, I heard this and I heard that and my reporting says this, but no one is actually saying it explicitly that it's it's hard to like really wrap your hands around it and feel like, this is what this speech was trying to do and meant or you know what i mean and right. so it's just like well if it's based off of such foundation like such shaky reporting or such you know vague reporting then how much is it worth it as me a media consumer to actually pay attention and know it right and that's kind of where i'm like trying like this is like 40 minutes for me to say like i it's hard for me to know like what parts of this story to pay attention to and, and the thing is, on some of these failures, it's not all on the White House. I mean, certainly the buck stops here, et cetera, et cetera. But there are other players in this that we're not talking about quite enough. For example, Senator Chuck Schumer, who is the majority leader of the Senate, and the Senate is failing again and again and again at every turn. Yeah, a lot of that is on the White House because the White House is trying to drive the agenda. But it's also on Senate leadership for not for the Senate just not working. And Jim Clyburn highlighted that a little bit when he was <laughs> presented with a sort of criticism by a senator about this effort. This is what Senator Bernie Sanders told the New York Times as we head into the midterms. I think millions of Americans have become very demoralized. They're asking, what do the Democrats stand for? Clearly, the current strategy is failing, and we need a major course correction. Do you disagree with that? Well, I don't know what he has reference to, uh, but I think that we've been pressing forward uh, on an agenda. What do we stand for? We stand for... The American Rescue Act. We stand for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, both now law. We stand for Build Back Better that we have passed in the House, and it's time for the senators to do what they need to do to get those bills across the finish line. We stand for fair, free, unfettered elections, and it's time that we pass that in the House. Democrats are in control in the House. I'm the vote counter in the House. We passed all these bills. That's what the Democrats stand for. Come on, Senate. Step up. Change your op-ed rules and get these bills passed. And everybody will know what we stand for. Uh, it's the Senate and its rules standing in the way. 
This is so good. Clyburn is so mad and also just like, I know what we're doing. What you doing, say? <laughs> yeah. But it's just it's so good because it's it's so eloquent, right? I mean, he's using the words, you know, what are we what do we stand for? And just on the fly, he's writing this incredible response. I'll tell you what we stand for. We stand for this and this and this. We've done it in the house. That's what Democrats stand for. Come on, Senate, step up. Everybody will know what we stand for, or at least that it's the Senate and its rules standing in the way. Wow. He brought fire, and he brought a little bit of poetry, I have to say, to that answer. (laughs) Brendan loves spontaneous, eloquent responses. I mean, even if they're not spontaneous, I love eloquent responses. I know, but when it's but like it's, on the fly and has amazing. like a poetic like... And the power. Undercurrent. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so, I mean, just to kind of like bring it back to how what we were talking about originally and Clyburn's appearances and Cassidy and Romney and kind of some of these commentators, like I'm just, I'm really curious as to what our listeners think about this coverage and if it's helpful, if it's not, what they're seeking, what they're not getting or what they're getting, because it's not really clear to me the shows had a like laser focus. And I'm curious as to if that focus will kind of sharpen as these negotiations continue or if it'll be kind of like the Build Back Better where it didn't feel like there was the laser focus and it just kind of meanders for weeks and weeks and weeks and then people stop caring <laughs> yeah, because it seems like nothing is happening and there isn't type of this layered approach of like, okay, we want to really understand the goals of the bill or, you know, the points of disagreement or we're trying to understand like the strategy and like which party is really getting in the way of lawmaking or you know what I mean like I just feel like there's this general apathy of like Congress in Washington doesn't do anything and maybe yeah, I mean I'm starting to feel that way yeah totally me too and I like freaking follow this like week after week really intensely and so I'm, I'm just kind of like are they going to do the same thing that they did for the last failed piece of legislation yeah, you, you know what they remind me of they remind me of a friend who you love to have them around there's so much fun at the party. You invite them over, but they're the flakiest freaking friend you've ever heard of. And they've burned you so many times, but not showing up. And you're just like, you know what? I'm not even going to hope anymore. They got the invitation. And, you know, we'll just see, right? Like, I'm not going to I'm not gonna plan for it. We're not going like, to we'll see if they'll show up. Congress is the friend in this scenario. We'll see if they show up and actually pass something. But I don't know if they do. And then I don't know if I should care. Like, why am I going to, like, stress about what they're going to do if it's, right, like, because, so unclear yeah. if they're actually going to do anything? Oh, they're sending me texts. Oh, I'm on the way. All right. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> Those are the fundraising calls that we get. For <laughs> <laughs> all these visits, on you know, on the Sunday shows. It's like, oh, okay. Like, people, there's some people you can believe, right? Like Jim Clyburn. I believe he's working for it. Anyway, I do want to point out, you had said, you know, the shows weren't very focused. I will say, I do think State of the Union, Jake Tapper did a good job. And you can kind of understand his focus and a focus he will not give up on, even if this conversation changes. And that is the focus on our democracy and it being actively under threat. 
Here's how he closed his show. Senator Rubio is correct. Our government was not almost overthrown by a guy wearing a Viking hat and Speedos. It was almost overthrown by armed, violent extremists, 11 of whom have now been charged with seditious conspiracy, and by others in the Trump administration and in positions of power throughout the country seeking to invalidate election results based on the wild lies of an unhinged team of conspiracy theories, and by MAGA media that spread those lies, and by more than 140 House and Senate Republicans who voted to disenfranchise all the voters of Arizona and Pennsylvania. And make no mistake, the conspiracy could have worked, and it might work next time. Pay attention to who they're lining up to count the votes. And on this Martin Luther King Day weekend, think about whose votes they don't want to count. Very powerful kind of defense of democracy, which you're right, Jake Tapper has been talking about a lot in the last few months. Yeah, and very well said there as at the close. And saying, look, this is, it's a real threat. And I feel like he's had to say this multiple times to try to, like, stop elected officials like Rubio from trying to minimize the threat. Well, Naomi, that was a different conversation that we, than we've been having. Yeah, way more intertwined than I think we were intending. <laughs> but uh, yeah, very we, didn't, in- we didn't have a strategy either. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Listen, it worked out this time, but in general, you should definitely have a strategy in place so your messaging is on point. Exactly. Otherwise, you will have really, really bad approval ratings. Yeah. Or, you know, you have to be Clyburn and like making poems on the fly. Yeah. Those are the only two. Yeah. We can dream. (laughs) Well, if you have any thoughts about today's episode, specifically around kind of like what you're hoping the news coverage focuses on or what you're seeking. I would love to see that feedback. You can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You're welcome to send it me directly at sodonaomi underscore on Twitter. Well, you can find me on Twitter at bstidle. You can find the show at polylogcast, but you can also find our dialogue challenge somewhere in this episode, maybe right here at the end because we skipped over it. Well, I think it's just like, what is the news coverage that you're seeking for this? Oh, I see, I see. That was the challenge. Yes. Indeed. See, this is what happens when you're not clear on the strategy. But there (laughs) is some intention there. You see? Like, I want to know, do you have, like, news needs? And I'm curious if the shows are even hitting the mark. Very well said. And we will be back here to look at the shows next week. Until then, talk to you later. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.